like, what's the next corner? What's the next step? How do I escalate this? Oh, that's when it hit me. It was like FBI, Secret Service. I built the Secret Service listing in DC in the same place as the real one. I had a phone number that routed from that phone number to the Secret Service switchboard. Didn't play the message saying calls are recorded, but it was recording calls. I really, <laughs> I mean, looking back, it worked out, but I hope that voice decides to be a little louder this next time. It's like, hey, maybe don't wiretap the Secret Service and the FBI to prove a point because people have gone to jail forever for a lot less. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. On the show, you're here from the trailblazers themselves as they tell their own before it happened story. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Sometimes we all need a wake-up call, and my guest today got one that not only changed his life, but put him on a path to change all of our lives for the better. You might know the name Brian Seeley for a stunt he staged back in 2014. In order to expose a vulnerability in Google Maps, he wiretapped the FBI and Secret Service, all from a McDonald's playground. The story went viral and almost overnight, Seeley became a world-famous ethical hacker and an in-demand thought leader on cybersecurity. Within a year, he had written his first book, given a TED Talk, and consulted for some of the largest organizations across the globe. But what few people know is that life-changing moment came at a time when Brian desperately needed something to change his life trajectory. He was a drug addict who had spent months living on the streets he was raising three children on little money, the oldest of whom was an addict herself. Brian's story is one of redemption. He's led a fascinating, but sometimes tragic life. But he's making the most of his second act as he focuses on making the digital world safer for everybody. Brian's journey began in Tokyo, Japan. He was born to missionary parents, and he and his siblings were educated there all the way through high school. His grandparents had also been missionaries in Tokyo after World War II, which is how his parents met. So it sounds like you had a very puritanical upbringing. I wouldn't say puritanical. My parents were fairly liberal, but there's a lot of conservative. There's a mix politically and ideologies kind of mixing and Southern Baptists, Evangelicals, Covenant. There's all these different regions from the United States represented in the makeup of the school. But so you had people who didn't ever smoke, drink, very, very strict things and other people who fairly liberal about stuff. My parents were pretty much the most tolerant and patient, loving people I've ever met. Um, siblings? 
I have two younger siblings. My first sister is four years younger, and I have a transgender sister who is eight years younger. So what was it growing like in Tokyo as a kid? You're American, but you're just, I've been to to Japan numerous times. So I always kind of see it as a a beautiful bento box in many ways, but that's as a a business and then as a tourist. What's it like living there as a child? How'd you fit in and what were your interests? You don't fit in in the same way that you fit in here by looks, but people quickly understand that that's what you consider home. If you've been there long enough or you speak the language a bit or the freedom to move around without a car, you can have a first or second grader taking the train 10 or 15 stops to go to their private school or whatever school they go to without adult supervision. So they get on the train at 7.30 in the morning, they have a little train pass, and they go throughout their day, and they're traveling all over the city. That's the equivalent of me in the suburbs sending my kid to walk to the train station to go to Bellevue or downtown Seattle and go to their school, get there, leave on time, get the train, come home, and then walk in the house. And there's even a Japanese phrase that's used. It's like, honey, I'm home, but it's tadaima. It's, I'm home, I'm here. And it's just part of that culture. It's very, very safe, very, very well-run and organized. The world is just super open there. And quiet. You can hear a pin drop. No one talks on the train because it would be rude to other people. Exactly. So obviously you you learned all the cultural nuances and adapted to that. What were you doing? What what kind of student were you? And were you into computers and science and math and things already? Or what was your K through 12 curriculum like? We moved back to the United States when I was three, and then we moved back to Japan when I was nine. I didn't remember much about it, but it was fourth grade uh, around 1991. And from then until 2000, when I graduated high school, was in Japan. So learning Japanese, video game, Super Nintendo. I played a lot of video games, watched Star Trek. Whatever year or day that you learn in school how to talk to girls, I didn't attend that day. So that was just a mystery to me. Still is, but... I got into computers fairly young. I was probably thinking about it like middle school, maybe eighth or seventh grade. And I was actually traveling to friends' houses within the community to do work for them at 10 or $15 an hour, even $20 an hour, because I just knew computers well enough. And so did you have a favorite subject in school? I liked math. I was good at science. I stopped working really hard at it or trying at about freshman, sophomore year and started getting into more trouble. Almost failed out, but by senior year, kind of picked it back up again to get out and move along. But all that, figuring out that I was undiagnosed ADHD and just wasn't able to function properly when it came to getting homework done and discipline. When did That's a very common thread in this show. <laughs> so you're in good company. I think half our guests have some unfound ADHD. Peter Shankman, he's even wrote a book called Faster Than Normal. If you're familiar with this great book, Peter was my first guest on the show. So, Oh, wow. And he does have kind of that genuine kind of like, I got ADHD. So what? Who cares? It's been identified. So when did you identify? 30. Okay, well, that's pretty late. Japan and so, doesn't have ADHD treatments available because the medications they use to treat it are all illegal. So you're kind of left behind? Not really. I mean, you don't know it until later, but I don't blame my parents or blame anyone. It's just the circumstances you live in. Some people don't have fresh water, so it's not the worst thing in the world. But the way it all happened, I was getting divorced, getting clean and sober, diagnosed ADHD, hadn't read a book in five to 10 years and ended up writing a book within a year, giving a TED Talk, completely turning my life around. And it was like a switch flipped. What year was that? 2013. That's pretty recent. So did you go straight from high school to the Marines? I went to college and did abysmally. 
I couldn't wake up on time. I could not function as an adult with that much freedom. I ended up drinking a ton and getting into a fraternity and not having any boundaries or balance between, okay, responsibility and these types of things. I was in a small town in Michigan. I just made a lot of hasty, irresponsible, sort of not well-planned or well-thought-out choices. Just I didn't take it seriously enough. And what would you have studied if you stayed? Probably business or computer science, but I made about a year. I have maybe a year's worth of credits. So then you made your pivot to the Marines? That's one way to say it, a pivot to the Marines. It's like you end up almost homeless and you walk into the recruiter's office and go, get me out of here. Yeah. We had another guest that went into joining the Marines, but they were close. He joined the Navy, which was kind of funny. So how did you get to the Marines? They opened the door. There's like four doors within this little corridor. So you walk in and you have left two doors to the left, two doors to the right. And the Marine recruiter opened up and said, get in here. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> and you were what, 20? I was 19. Yeah. Why did you pick the Marines? 9-11 happened. A, the recruiter was the first one to open the door. And then realizing there wasn't anyone hard, any other service that was more difficult. So there was that sort of like, all right, well, at least I'm doing the hardest thing. And like, I'll be able to live with that choice, get in shape. And it did have a ton of good benefits coming out of it that I still have today. But discipline or? Yeah, discipline, certain ways of thinking, ways of being able to handle stress. During stressful events, I tend to be much more focused and able to deal with conflict or pressure much better than I probably would have before. Then it's only when I'm bored is when I decide to just sabotage things because I'm bored, whatever that mindset is. So what was your enlisted role in the Marines and how long were you in? Linguist. And I was discharged early for an autoimmune disorder uh, people are familiar with called narcolepsy. So I imagine your Japanese was valuable? Not really. <laughs> there are no enlisted roles for Japanese speakers in the Marine Corps. There's officer roles, which would be foreign area relations officers who go to the embassy, who work with Japanese military, but not for enlisted people. So you work with both Japanese military and the U.S. military simultaneously? I was, after I got out of the Marine Corps as a civilian, working with a couple of different companies one of the companies had a contract to get the Japanese military what's called a retrograde, pulling out of the country, having to clean all their vehicles before they go through customs in Japan so they don't have any quarantine issues for soil and that kind of thing. And they needed somebody who was willing to go in the field with a security team and bulletproof up armored cars and deal with 140 degree heat and like get shot at and potentially mortared at base and basically living the life of a soldier or anything else, except you're wearing khakis and sweating a lot. And it's, it's just so hot, ridiculous. But it was an interesting experience. It was an adventure. There's lots of boredom at night when you're not with a military unit. So I ended up finding other military units to hang out with and play cards. And I was always good at, I guess, making friends, meeting people if I needed to, which has been an interesting skill. To, like, how far can I take this? Who could I meet if I really tried? But yeah, a lot of fun. A common theme of kind of adaptability and agility, it sounds like, because you've already, from the time you were a child to your 30, you've kind of gone in and out of all these different scenarios. And Oh, it and... gets way worse. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, better, worse, but like, if you think that's the most intense part. Oh, no, we're going to get there. So let's talk about after the military and you're doing your thing. What was your first professional, your consulting and... Is that full-time? Is it kind of hit or miss? 
I got back from Iraq August 06, went to Japan for a few months, went back to the States because working in Japan without a visa, if you don't have a college degree, you can't get a work visa. You can work part-time, like 25 hours or 26 hours a week, but not full-time. So I moved back to the States to try and figure out what I was going to do. And PTSD, a drug addiction, just I ended up hopelessly addicted to drugs. Luckily, I mean, sort of, ended up meeting a girl, getting pregnant, getting married, straightening out a bit. It wasn't the right marriage, but we had a daughter. And so rocky times in Southern California for about three or four years, we moved to Washington State, up here to Seattle, and separating 2013 timeframe, right as we conceived another kid. And that divorce was really hard. We both put each other through a lot of different things. Had the second kid throughout there that period, I went from like a junior help desk engineer to a senior engineer fairly quickly. Took a lot of certifications, studied a lot. Once I had gotten my ADHD diagnosis around 30, it all accelerated. And a year later, I had both kids full-time and I became a foster parent to my stepkid all the same mom. There was addiction issues with the oldest and she was 15-ish, 15, 16. So I took all the certification classes and everything else and Washington State certified me as a foster parent. So I had a one-year-old son, seven-year-old daughter, and then my foster daughter, 16. Well, that's admirable. I actually used to child advocate, and I adopted my two kids from Russia. So they came with passport that's, and we'll, that's we'll travel. So 2014. So now you're going through all this personal challenge and talk about the famous incident that's documented over and over. But you obviously had some knowledge and ability to be able to do something that the most the common person would not be able to do, to be able to use Google as not just for search, but for using it as a kind of backdoor gateway. Can you describe that was leading up to that day where I read you were at McDonald's? Is that correct? I was at a, I, my daughter. Well, I had, it was just my daughter and I sharing custody with my ex-wife. And we were at the McDonald's play area so she, she could jump in the, the ball pit or climb the thing. And I was sitting there on my computer studying. And she'd make friends, and so it was just easy to spend an hour, hour and a half there watching videos and training. And I was frustrated at an old job that was doing manipulation-type data entry to game the system. Meaning, really simply, if you look up Google results for like a carpet cleaner or a pool cleaner, anyone that services a client at their location rather than you going to their office, they're all right for fraud, locksmiths especially. So Google started cracking down on locksmiths, but this was also exploited in tons of other industries all over the world, not just Google. Yelp, Bing Maps is really bad. Whitepages.com, holy crap, don't ever use it. The top 10, top 50, top 100 are all fake. But the phone numbers work and the websites work. You still get someone answering the phone, but they're not real companies, so there's no accountability. And they're all going to the same people who are then pushing legitimate business owners out. And so there's all these nuances and all these different variables. So I wanted to see how bad it was. I started checking back into it, and it had been a few years since I'd worked with that company and kind of grown a conscience. And so using some of the tactics and knowing a lot about how to place stuff on Google Maps, using their their tools as designed. Google Maps built a way so that you can submit your information, get it verified, get your business online, like kind of like putting a web page up. Well, I could move stuff around. Shouldn't be able to do that. I could put different phone numbers on things that didn't have phone numbers, like ATMs, and then 
verify the ATM with the phone number. It calls me. Now that it's a managed business listing, now I can change the address and change the name, change the category, add photos, put it in Washington, D.C., in the same spot as the Secret Service, same photos, and then flag the other one as spam. So assuming all people are good and the intentions are good of everyone, it's an amazing service. But there's a couple people who are causing a lot of problems and it makes for, they're not considering that in the design and it's very difficult to police. And the only way to really know which businesses are legal and legitimate would be interfacing with every single state, country, database of who has a business license that's active or not. So if I'm a small business and I want to advertise and so I go when I create a profile and then I'm legitimate, but I am competing with a lot of fake servers and fake businesses that are actually trawling to take my business away. If you need people to show up at your office, it's very difficult to make a fake restaurant and have it last very long because people will show up and report it as fake and it doesn't exist. But when was the last time you ever needed to go to your pool cleaner's office? They don't have one. They are mobile. They go to you. So you never figure it out. As long as someone's showing up and cleaning your pool and you're paying them, why would we've got enough stuff to keep ourselves busy? We're not verifying the legitimacy of these things. It's not a hobby that anyone has. Yeah, got it. And so then you reported this to Google. Yeah. And you flagged them. And what was that in form of an email? I sent them a a report on one of their reporter problem pages. And they said it was basically spam. Not a big deal. Go away. And then how did you debunk that? I made a bunch of funny listings to try and get some attention. I made a concentration camp in North Korea that turned it into an amusement park with a South Park joke. Super mega fun time happy land. I changed the Library of Congress in D.C. to the Zoolander School of Kids Who Can't Read Good on tape with Como News here in Seattle. So they filmed it and showed it on air. The Mormon Temple became a comedy club. The Church of Scientology became a comedy club. A Russian embassy in the United Kingdom became a gay bar. A bunch of really fairly inappropriate, immature type humor that I stand by firmly. Well, you say <laughs> you could have had another career as a comedian or a comedic writer. <laughs> um, those, are, those are great. I mean, a little the bit Westboro naughty. Baptist but Church, the Westboro Baptist Church became a, a sex dungeon. It just juxtapositions are like just so extreme. It's, it is entertaining. The best ones that got the most attention was Edward Snowden's secret hiding place. It was on the White House lawn. So if you zoomed into the White House, you'd see this little Edward Snowden's secret hiding place. And it got tons of attention. That was funny, too. Let's talk about the next level, which is you're doing all this. And then the secrets this, you had a, a gateway to the Secret Service. No one really did anything after the news article. So the next day I was like, well, what could I do that's dangerous or more scary? Like, could I create a law firm or take over a law firm or a bank or a hedge fund or a congressman's office or anything that inbound phone calls? That's when it hit me. It was like FBI, Secret Service. At no point did my brain go, maybe don't. I really, (laughs) I mean, looking back, it worked out, but I hope that voice decides to be a little louder this next time. It's like, hey, maybe don't. (laughs) Don't wiretap the Secret Service and the FBI to prove a point because people have gone to jail forever for a lot less. So I demonstrated it. So you didn't really, like, you kind of backed into this scenario and you just kept kind of just, like, 
pushing. Yeah, it's like, what's the next corner? What's the next step? How do I escalate this? The difference between success and failure is failure to put enough effort into something to accomplish the goal. So like I needed to keep going until it was done. And at no point did my brain go, eh. So wiretap, I built the secret service listing in DC in the same place as the real one. I had a phone number that routed from that phone number to the secret service switchboard. Didn't play the message saying calls are recorded, but it was recording calls. It was like a marketing campaign style website, like uh, Ring Central or Vonage or whatever. Pick a number, set it up. So 24 hours, five, no, six hours, eight hours? No, 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 no. Like within an hour, I had two or three calls. Within four or five hours, it was 10 or 15. By the next morning, it was 40. From who? Random people. I only listened to three, two or three calls before I realized I don't want to listen to more and get into really big trouble. You can't unhear certain things. Like You don't want someone calling in. One was a cop calling about an active investigation about currency because the Secret Service does all the treasury stuff. Another person was asking to speak to the inspector general of the Secret Service, which they don't have. And another person, I think, called the FBI and was absolutely insane. It was like, the pennies are tracking me or something like that. That was the point I stopped listening. So when did it go from getting all these calls to like it, you get the call or the FBI? How did that? So I called the FBI, told them they hung up on me after about 10 minutes. And so I decided to drive to the Secret Service office in downtown Seattle. And I walked in and they said, oh, OK. So we talked for a few minutes. And then one guy came out with a printout with the Google Maps, Edward Snowden secret hiding place, funny listing from the previous, the day or two days before story. And he goes, this is you? I'm like, yeah. And so they didn't still believe me that I was able to do anything significant in their head. They're just like, oh, you're just pranking on the map. That doesn't do anything. Well, there's three agents and me in this little, maybe a size of a two-car garage sort of lobby. And I was like, all right, I know you guys don't believe me. They asked me to leave. They asked me to get a hold of me or whatever. I said, I can prove it in five minutes or less. And if I can't, I'll just leave. And it's totally fine. I don't want to waste your guys' time. Call the office of the Secret Service in Washington, D.C., and I'll prove it. So he pulls his cell phone out and he taps on it. And this is one of those social engineering type, almost like magic where, or magic show where your guy's predictable response is he's going to open it up. He's going to go to Google. He's going to type in secret service, Washington, DC. And then the listing will pop up above the search results. It'll give you map and business locations. He clicks on that. He pushes call. He puts it to his ear and he gets the guy on the switchboard and he knows him personally. So he recognizes his voice and he's like, hey, this is Brian in Seattle. His name is also Brian for added confusion. It's unfortunate. And talks to him for a minute. We're all listening to him talking to the phone. Hangs up. I get a notification on my phone. Push play, push speaker. And now I can play back his conversation. And we all heard the other guy now. And they're the most composed. They're all ex-military, now cops. And the only thing the guy said was, oh, shit. And then they took all my stuff. And then patted me down, gave me a form that said, these are your rights, but you're not under arrest. Was this like a sliding door moment? Like what was going through your mind to just what you were, I would say, not maliciously <laughs> doing, and all of a sudden it's like, it's going down. How did that feel? It was a definitely intense. It felt more like excitement rather than panic or nervousness because I was being honest and they didn't catch me. It wasn't like, hey, we found out you're doing all this stuff and you're trying to sell it to the Russians or the Chinese or the aliens, whatever the thing is. 
it was, I'm trying to convince them there's a problem and they're rejecting it. And finally they see the light and then they're like, get him. <laughs> Come on. We don't need to do that. You don't need to search me. I came in here. This isn't some elaborate trick, but I got it. I know their protocols. They're just trying to eliminate variables and protect everyone. So they took me to a little guest suite, a room with no windows and a couple plastic chairs. And there's a little table that's glued or fabricated to the wall. And there's a handcuff bar and nothing else. And I showed them how I did it over and over and over and over again, because it took a while because I had to tether to my iPhone because they wouldn't let me on the Wi-Fi. I don't know why. So I had to sit there with barely any reception because you're in the center of a big building <laughs> in a room with no windows. It doesn't get good reception, but it works. So is Google fixed this problem? Sort of. The initial response was after they saw it enough times, one of the higher agents in the entire agency is in Seattle and in charge of the whole West Coast. So he and his team were calling Google and yelling at them and going, he told you about this and he gave you examples and screenshots, what the hell, he just did this. So they had to shut down new maps registrations for all businesses for like two months and I got death threats. And they told the Secret Service that they fixed everything that I had been able to exploit, which wasn't true because a year later I did the TED Talk and I had built another funny listing for the TED Talk, which was a snowboarding shop in the White House called Edward's Snow Den. And that was my favorite. So it still, you, it still makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah, you're pretty funny. So do you, you do you think that you're any brighter or smarter and kind of stumbling upon this than like No, no. If anything, I'm dumber. Who thinks that's a good idea? And then does it and then goes in. You just you burn your computer, you leave, you pretend it was never you, and you just deny, deny, deny. But for some reason the the path that it happened, it led to a lot of other things later that this made my whole career. That's why I'm here. I didn't have, other than my daughter, I didn't have a lot going for me at that point anyways. I wasn't really much used to anyone. I wasn't at best headspace. It's just, there was no destination that was, I wasn't living a great life. It was boring. It was divorced, living in a crappy one bedroom shared place with the guy who was off and on on drugs. And so are you a very structured parent and giving them guidelines of what to do and not to do and block and stuff? They, like have, they have blocks for screen time on certain entertainment apps, content restrictions. My son is definitely pushing boundaries. My daughter doesn't. If I tell her not to do something or to go to bed at a certain time, she does it. She doesn't want to break the rules. My son does not give an F about the rules. He wants his thing. So there's different parenting styles. My oldest, the foster kid, she was already a drug addict by 15. And at 16, when she was with me for about a year, my mom got sick, cancer back in Japan, and my daughter, foster kid, relapsed and was trafficked here in Seattle. Sorry to hear that. She was That's... missing for almost a month. She back? I found her before the FBI did. Oh, that's good. She went to rehab for like 18 months. Six months after I had found her, I was a complete mess and had to put my kids in foster care after a suicide attempt. This pulled me out of that, gave me a lot of, it changed my life completely. Some ways it gave you a sense of purpose, right? This gave me confidence in the idea, like, maybe I do notice stuff that other people don't see. And that led to other discoveries, like finding out that I can find problems in code that I don't know the actual language of the code, but I can see patterns in different ways. And I was like, oh, crap, am I autistic and no one's telling me? It just felt like, wait, what's going on here? But it, I get this stuff. It's what I'm interested in. But I also like people as much as I like tech. So that's what led to the speaking and then this stuff. Did you have your family support when this all went down? Yeah, 
after the divorce, I basically lost all of my extended family on one side and not being able to defend myself because I'm on drugs and there's the split. So the victor of that was able to set the narrative and what the tone was that I was an abusive ex-Marine drug addict and whatever else was said. So now I have my dad, my sister, well, basically my mom and my dad. And then I have my kids and I became very involved in alcoholics or 12-step type groups, not always AA or anything particular, but whatever kind of fit. And that became family. So as the incident was in some ways kind of a, a restart <laughs> that you need to take a hard look at things. Oh, and- it was huge because now I'm inseparable from it, very involved multiple times a week. And it's not like, oh, I have to go to this 12-step meeting. It's more like, hey, I get to go see my friends. And now it's more like, hey, my family's there. These are people that I've gone through everything with and would do anything for. And it's definitely shaped the last few years of my life in a way that I would never take back. But at some points, it was like hell on earth. So do you think that when it comes to your purpose, is it It sounds like fatherhood and parenting is a, a big priority? Yes. Cybersecurity and protecting people is definitely my day-to-day, and I love doing it. I like protecting people or helping educate people to give them the tools they can do for themselves. I like meeting people and talking about this stuff. I found out that I like now that I went through all of that and then how I got out of it was battling depression, battling how to do self-care, how to get out of bed in the morning when you don't have a purpose or when you don't feel like it or like all of this stuff means nothing when you don't have your children or one of your children is being trafficked on Backpage and sold online. And you're trying to find her by looking through pornography, which has consequences. So there was... A significant amount of healing and work that needed to be done getting into therapy and then realizing there's a lot of stigma around it and not wanting to go and not wanting to cry in front of people and not wanting to talk about emotional issues. In the beginning of the pandemic, there was a an end of a three-year relationship that formed right after my daughter was taken and that I take breakups hard. I don't deal with them well. So all of it culminated to this, like I found religion, for lack of a better term, more spiritual, but I became a Christian through that process and in that learning, like, not, if, if, she kind if of went back to happy, your roots. If you're happy with, no, it was different because I was never exposed to the same stuff that I heard this last time. It was a whole different experience. Like, what's, if you're happy and you're content in your life, you are not going to hear word one from me as to what you should be doing with your life. All I know is left to my own devices, I am homeless and a meth addict under a bridge and without help. That's where I go. Or I am selling my kidney in Tijuana to buy more cocaine. And without that other, some spiritual or whatever intervention, call it whatever you want, universe, God, higher power, that's me. That's what I deserve. So I don't deserve this for sure, more than a second, third, fourth, fifth chance. So now it's okay, how can I be of service to others in the maximum way I can and learn and grow and stay excited? And it's still hard. But therapy, EMDR, so many different things, exercise, losing weight, better diet, better sleep. Who knew? Who knew all these routines and adult things to do would have such a massive impact? Well, it's kind of like you've had multiple sobering moments, right? The incident in 2014 was a sobering moment, and then you became sober. How long were you on the streets? Off, uh, there's two or three periods for of months. So you've written a book, and let me talk about your book a bit. What is the demographic or just kind of the, I don't know, call it genius, or the, just the kind of the 
mindset of somebody that really is capable of hacking. I'm assuming you've talked to a lot of these folks. And what do we need to be aware of? And just kind of like, what's that mindset? Can you tell me who likes rock and roll? Can you tell me what kind of person that is? It can be everyone. There's not a physical or race or skin color. Nothing to do with human attributes that divide us, typically. Men, women, everyone has a different way of thinking about problems and organizing and getting excited about things. And it's the puzzle aspect and the challenge that a lot of people, I think, like. So all of a sudden, you're doing something that's hard, and you're gaining these little moments of dopamine, I guess. And you're like, oh, I just did this, and I can go do this, and I want to learn that. And like, hey, now you got to learn French to understand this software that's only in French. You're like, let's do it. So now you're brought in to help solve some of those problems and just be more preventative. So so I've had consulting engagements privately through my own consulting efforts. And I work for a startup called Sciemptive, which aims to stop ransomware and other types of malicious software through clever engineering and programming. My boss is brilliant. My direct boss is 35 years at the NSA and the CEO has no kids and he used to run Hitachi's cloud service built their entire Azure type environment, sits around and programs and loves it. And he's come up with some really cool stuff that actually works. So I begged them to hire me and they finally did. That's great. Does this work you've done with ransomware and spyware on the business side translate down to the consumer side? Yeah. Learning how it works, learning what the modifications are every time they change something. Every strain of ransomware has a different mechanism. It waits this long, tax this thing. So you end up coming up with more and more solutions for how to the criminals elevate their game and you have to elevate your game to match it and then show people, okay, this is why it's important. Why do we wash our hands? Because you'll get sick. It's like talking to children sometimes, but sometimes they want the why. Sometimes they just want to be told what to do. And you have to be prepared for both and to see the big picture. So they're constantly looking at problems and flaws to improve them, not as a negative perspective. But if you don't, you're going to be the one house on the block that doesn't have a deadbolt installed and they're coming after you first. So I read, and the number could be off, but and you might have a number, like the cybersecurity market is a $1.6 billion incident market. Does that sound about right? Or you think it's bigger? significantly more. I mean, there was an Acer paid $50 million. There was a $50 million ransom for Acer computers this year. $30 million or no, $75 million for another that was hit by Kaseya. So that one company infected a whole bunch of other ones because of the way the ransomware was. Ransomware... Developers are now targeting insurance companies, not because they want to break in and get them ransomware. They're breaking in to get the list of insured clients so they can go and attack them and they know they'll pay out. Brilliant. Wow. So that's one of the hotspots. Are there other hotspot markets? Anything connected to the internet. So I read now that blockchain is being more integrated into enterprises and you get companies, Fortune 500 companies now using that as another vortex or gateway. Have you seen that as well? Blockchain makes the new buzzword. Not everyone needs one. It's a ledger. It's a way of having a record of all transactions, like how banking works, or it's a good way to keep track of patents or intellectual property, all sorts of different creative uses for it. But the fundamentals of what network security are, attack the people or attack the devices. The blockchain's weak because it's one way of storing money. And then if you're using untraceable cryptocurrency, having uh, Bitcoin, Monero, these other types, Ethereum, 
you can demand these ransoms or you can just go in and steal encryption keys and steal the money from them without having to demand the ransom because that seems like an extra hassle. So the first goal of these people breaking into networks isn't ransomware. That's scorched earth. That's the way out. That's what they do on the way out when they couldn't find anything else to steal or if they break into the email of the CEO and email the CFO saying, hey, I'm in a meeting, you need to wire this company. They've got this new product we're buying, new service, whatever. I don't have time to talk about it. I'm getting on a plane, whatever the thing is. And then that's billions of dollars every year. I think the internet crime report from the FBI last year was 1.6, 1.7 billion in those types of scams. And those are only the ones reported to the crime center. So it could be significantly higher. So. Going back to 2014, I know that that the incident actually kind of led you to this whole new purpose and career, but is there anything that you wish you were doing differently on that day (laughs) at McDonald's? (laughs) Maybe. No, no, I wouldn't change any of it. You wouldn't rewrite history. I mean, it wouldn't be, that wouldn't start there. It's impossible to know the butterfly effect of changing things. And I had spent over 10,000 Bitcoin on drug markets in 2012, 2013, before I got clean and sober. And you know how much that's worth now? About $600 million. That's a little bit of a pain point, regret-wise. I would never have to speak to another human being if I wanted to ever again. I could live on an island that's surrounded by other islands and boats and yachts and robots, and I would never, I could do whatever I want. I could buy a planet, $600 million, but I, I wouldn't change it because my kids are the most important thing in the world to me and the people I've been able to meet and the adventures and you can't buy some of it with any amount of money. And then the lessons of learning of hitting bottom and different ways and learning how to maybe be able to help others with it. Hopefully I'll be able to pitch a rough draft of a book in about a month that I'm finishing up that talks about all of it. And there's all these little life stories that are all now kind of coming clear, like, huh, maybe I was on the right path, even though it didn't feel like success at the time, but something was looking out for me because I should have been dead a bunch of times. Well, we wouldn't have a very good story, would we? <laughs> it would definitely be a much quieter podcast. What are three things? I just like things in three. Maybe there's five things. What should we be doing better to protect ourselves? Be skeptical using common sense and avoid convenience. So if someone sends you an email, iCloud account was hacked, please verify this. Your bank was hacked, please verify this. Norton just renewed your subscription for $700 to cancel in the next 24 hours. Click this link. They're all trying to trick you. They only have to get right once. Updating your computer, making sure some of the basics are done. It's like changing your oil in your car, putting air in the tires. It's not fun. It's not glamorous. It doesn't feel like a big deal, but it can save you a ton on gas mileage efficiency. If you have your tires properly filled up, you're not going to get punctured. Your car lasts longer, less likelihood of a rollover accident if a car tire blows out. So all these what ifs that we all get because it's the real world. If you go and click on that new ooh coupon printer or wow, this new app has this shareware sort of bundled with it. Well, I need that. And then all of a sudden you have 50 toolbars on your browser. You're not using the right one. Nothing's updating. You've got ransomware. You've got all these other things because the Internet is magic and it's this wonderful place where everything's free. Nothing is free. The advertising pays for everything and screen time is making someone else money. If you do not pay for a service, then you are the product, period. I know that for a fact that advertising, I use Google Suite. I love Google products 
Google Maps could use improvement, but it's still the map that I choose to use. I know my Gmail has advertisements and there's keywords and I'm okay with that. The worst that happens is if I buy a toilet seat on Amazon and all of a sudden they're sending me recommendations for new toilet seats for the next month. I'm not a collector of toilet seats. Get that. Like, what do you, why do I need 50 of these stupid things? But it does help. Some of the recommendations are helpful. Like all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, this phonics book for my kid. Oh, that'll be helpful. So there's good and bad. And as a single parent, I couldn't live without Amazon Prime. And especially in a pandemic. Are you kidding me? I'm going to go out and go hang around and get super sick and come home and infect my kids who have no safety net. Yeah, no, thanks. Put my stuff in a box. So do you think the current work that you're doing has changed how you view the world and also how you parent? What's going to happen if your car gets broken into something gets stolen? Stuff is all replaceable. I mean, sure, the worst nightmare for me was trafficking, my daughter being missing and not being able to find her. Everything else paled in comparison. It's like, someone's going to break into my home and steal my TV. Have it. Go. It's used. I wanted a new one. Like Stuff becomes a lot less meaningful. But if you know that there are solutions out there, you can self-advocate. You can go to the doctor and say, I'm feeling this way. I need help. I think you're a great life coach. <laughs> you oh, might use like, all the stuff that you host. We could keep talking. The, oh my God, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate it. That means that my therapist did a job and I learned and I listened and I repeated and I was able to articulate something in context that I was taught. But having me as a life coach, that's hilarious. <laughs> First, you're going to want to wiretap a government agency, and then, maybe before drug addiction, and then what are we going to do? Let's have a couple of kids you can barely handle, and then it's just, it doesn't seem like a recipe for success, so the fact that it is going well is nothing short of a miracle. That was Brian Seeley. While he's learned from and moved past his McDonald's incident, he still continues to fight for digital security for both businesses and consumers. In addition to baking birthday cakes for his kids, Brian spent much of the pandemic writing what will be his second book. This time, he wants to candidly share his journey through addiction and toward greater mental health. He says he no longer needs to identify as the rebellious hacker to earn credibility. He's ready to tell the whole story in order to help others dealing with the same issues he's managed to overcome. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood, and all episodes are written and developed by Jack Buer with additional editing and music provided by Nota Lab.